Hello, this is Earth Matters, environmental and social justice stories from around the world, produced in the studios of 3CR Radio Melbourne on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nation and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Crunch. Today, come on a journey with me to the land of the English River Nation in Saskatchewan, Canada. I made this journey in June 2015 with five other nuclear-free activists from Australia, and we stayed with the Paul family on their reservation surrounded by forests and lakes. It has been almost two years since our visit, so I caught up with Candace Paul via Skype this week, covering many topics, including their successful struggle against a high-level nuclear waste dump, the dirty tactics of the nuclear industry worldwide, and the wisdom of Dene ecology in these times of environmental crisis. Well, I'm a member of English River First Nation in northern Saskatchewan. It's a Dene First Nation, and I'm the outreach coordinator for Committee for Future Generations. Great, and I was actually lucky enough to... um, be a part of a nuclear-free learning trip and come and visit you and your family in June 2015 it was. And um, that time the lake ice had melted. But for our listeners here in Australia, could you um, just describe the landscape around the English River Nation a little and just paint a bit of a picture? Well, we live in what's called the boreal forest. So it's evergreen, mainly evergreen forest with a smattering of poplar trees. Um at this time of year, we're in the middle of winter, and it's not—it's not really been a hard winter. We don't have a lot of snow this winter. Mm. Um, we're in a bit of a cold snap at the moment, but it's been a lot less cold than normal. Um, yeah, we've got a lot of rivers and lakes in our area, and a lot of muskegs, mm. and it's—it's it's a beautiful place. It's, yeah, it's beautiful to, to live here. Yeah, I certainly remember seeing all the beaver dams near your place and just, yeah, a very different and exciting um, landscape and climate and cultures. Yeah. So um, We're land lakes and rivers, basically. We're like a sponge up here. Mm. And you've, you said how you're a member of the um, Committee for Future Generations, the spokesperson, and... I was just wondering when when this group began and was it responding to particular nuclear developments in Saskatchewan? Yes, we began um, as a group on May 16th, 2011. And that was in response to finding out that three communities in our north were being targeted to look at storing high-level nuclear waste. Mm which is mainly uh, there are no nuclear reactors in, in Saskatchewan, almost, well, the, all the open, currently open uranium mines are in Saskatchewan, mm. but and in our, our part of Saskatchewan. and um, But the reactors are all basically in Ontario, Quebec, and um, New Brunswick, which is to the east. So they would have had to haul it across three provinces to get it here. Mm. And when we found that out, we quickly mobilized because we didn't like that idea one bit. It's bad enough we have uranium mines here and we have to deal with the toxic legacy, the radioactive legacy of that. 
but the the concept of having the high level radioactive waste buried in our territory and experimented on in our territory was something we didn't want to accept Mm. especially as we learned more about it it's a really scary prospect so we mobilized really quickly we did a walk across uh, from northern Saskatchewan to southern Saskatchewan in 2011 to raise awareness and get petitions signed against asking for a ban mm. on the storage of nuclear waste um, we still haven't got a ban but fortunately uh, as of early 2015 we are not going to be hosting nuclear waste in Saskatchewan. Yeah I remember when we visited that was only a f- couple of months after um, was it, so how how did that come about was that a was that a political announcement that that would those plans were off um, due to your pressure? Um, well, they announced it was off because of geology, mm. but in, in a conversation they had with a newspaper reporter, he asked them, you know, if the pressure we had put on had any bearing on it. And they basically admitted that, yeah, there was a lot of misinformation from a small <laughs> group of people. Uh, 20,000 people signed the petition. Mm. <laughs> uh, it's not such a small uh, I mean, our our group is is not a large group, but we were able to get the message out and did a lot of research. And it was science-based research. We yeah. also attended most of the meetings that they held in our region and were able to expose gaps in their information, lack of information, false information that they were putting out. Mm. So... It just made it more like more and more difficult for them to sell the plan. Mm. And, and that's basically what it was. It was a sales pitch. Mm. And they actually asked one time whether or not what our credentials were to speak to people, and it gave us an opportunity to ask what theirs were. And basically, one guy was a public relations person, and the other guy was had business administration background. So. You know, our background was equal to theirs, and we also had the backing of physicists, all kinds of people, physicians, you name it. Yeah, it's quite incredible how um, the science probably sounds like it was just being ignored until your pressure um, actually forced them to, you know, cite geology as the reason, which it probably was a very valid reason not to go ahead with the waste dump, but that wouldn't have been revealed had it not been for the pressure put on. And it's a all too similar story to examples here um, with the search for waste dumps, with the duplicity and lies and coercion, also a lot of pressure around emotional manipulation around, you know, someone needs to store this stuff. And have you ever known anyone who's had cancer and nuclear medicine yeah, and that's the first thing they brought up. We have noted that we've been in touch with people in Australia on mm. this issue and, you know, the, the similarities of approach, well, actually the similarities of, of approach are pretty standard worldwide, mm. um, we found out because they brought in somebody from the Blue Ribbon Commission, which was in the United States, where they were looking at the for a big nuclear waste dump there. And 
you know, he gave us the recipe that they figured out in Sweden is find out what communities need and then go and tell them, well, if you take this, you'll be able to do all that. Um, it's, it's essentially how they've, they've been able to force their way into people into taking something that nobody, nobody on in their right mind should ever want. Mm. And then like, just so that folks in Australia know, uh, there's still an international experiment going on in Manitoba in Canada, and that experiment will be going on for another 50 years to, uh, try and figure out how to seal the hole right of their ways down they don't even know at this point if they can seal the hole we also proved that they weren't telling people and they had to admit it in one of their meetings that aquifers beneath the ground would be contaminated because they need the bentonite clay to be wet to seal mm. And in order for them to take, you know, so they weren't selling people those things. Yeah, that is really important to share that with, you know, communities resisting here. And we've done tours out to some of the mines um, near desert communities where it's they similarly first up say there's no danger for the aquifers and but when you probe a bit further and ask them about how it actually works yeah there's there's no clear scientific reasons and there is no way for them to thoroughly clean up and remediate a mine Mm. uh we apparently have the best practices in the world um for that and uh, the Clough Lake Mine, the tailings, ponds that animals are, are digging through, they're not adequately covered, they're permeable. Uh, the frost is going to force the, the tailings back up to the surface. Animals are already exposed. Um, there's high radiation levels in certain areas. They're essentially creating sacrifice zones. Mm. You're tuned to Earth Matters and my interview with Candace Paul of the English River Nation in Saskatchewan, Canada. Back to it. Some of our listeners will be familiar with Cameco, which is a Canadian company that has explored extensively for uranium in different parts of Australia and has been pushing for a uranium mine at Yaliri in Western Australia for over 40 years now. And we have traditional owners of that country and their allies have fought off the mine. Um, Yaliri actually means death in the local language of that country. Last year, the government's agency, the Environmental Protection Authority, found that the mine contravened environmental laws around uh, endemic species to that area that would be threatened. Um, But then just recently, the ministers actually overridden those environmental laws and gone ahead and approved the mine. And I just wanted to ask you about um, Cameco's operations in Canada and if they've managed to sidestep environmental laws in similar ways or how how they've um, aligned themselves with government and corporate interests. Well... Uh, over the last 10 years until 2015, um, 
we had a government that just thoroughly threw out environmental protection, mm. threw out the protection of millions of waterways. So essentially, there's not a whole lot of protection of our waterways and our lands. And uh, they've pushed for the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, which is the regulator, nuclear regulator in Canada. But it's 70% paid for by the nuclear industry Mm. um, to be the environmental assessor on these projects. And they claim they're independent. Uh, We disagree. They're not. Mm. Um, They've they've allowed a lot of contamination that should never have happened. It's lax. They get told one thing by the companies. By the time they come up to check, there's another story. You know, it's just... It's ridiculous. They have all these years allowed miners to be exposed. And there's been like the miners in Ontario all died. The miners from Clough Lake, most of them are already dead. Mm. The miners from Uranium City were dispersed, so they didn't show a cancer cluster. They only accept radiation. Lung cancer as the only cancer that uh, uranium mining causes from the radon gas. Wow, that's yet in the United States they accept forty different illnesses, mm. including cancers, as being caused by radio radiation exposure. So, like, how does that change from one border to another? You know, like that's not ex- not good information. They've had an influence on health districts. Um, they have what's called the Community Vitality Partnership with the health districts. Mm. Uh, so, you know, when we ask for studies, like there was never a baseline study done on the health of the people. Now the cancer rates are soaring and mm. everybody knows it. So our, our communities are in a constant state of grief. Mm. People People who didn't even work in the mines are getting cancers because our, our country foods are our, our caribou, our moose, our fish, our berries that we depend on are, are being impacted. And those things don't know borders. Mm-hmm. We also have forest fires. And when, when fires burn around the mines, we found out. Uh, we had a huge forest fire season in, in 2015, right after you guys left, the fires started. Mm-hmm. And um, we were getting, we were taking radiation readings with a Geiger counter and we were seeing spikes during the time the fires were, were burning. And we posted that on, on our Facebook. Mm. Right away uh, in the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, there was a report from the Sylvia Fedoric Center for Nuclear Innovation that um, no way could there be radioactive ash in the fire, don't anybody worry because it's not burning near the mines. Yeah. Well, it was burning near one mine and it burned over the remediated Clough Lake area, which had been exposed to, to radioactive dust from open pit mining for decades. Mm. So, you know, that told us two things. One, yeah, there could be radioactive ash if it burns around mines. And that could be a concern. 
Mm, that's, yeah, really distressing to hear. This is Earth Matters. I'm Crunch, and we're hearing my conversation with Candace Paul of the English River Nation, who is speaking to us from her home in northern Canada. It does seem that the parallels of the effects of colonisation and exploitation of resources in um, Canada and Australia are, are really striking, and but also the strong continued fight of First Nations people for for the land. And I was reading your article, um, Profitable Element, Powerful Entity, when you're talking about the Dene ecology and worldview and that it's fundamentally incompatible with nuclear development and the lifespan of um, uranium once it's been taken out of the, the ground. Could you explore this idea with us a little and if you've had um, much traction with arguing that um, or building momentum through those arguments? Well, for one thing, okay, our our concept is that um, uranium, as with all things of the land, is a deity in itself. It is not just a mineral. Hmm. And it has a purpose where it belongs. Our people have always known, as I'm sure I've seen that they know in Australia, that it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous thing. Our people were told to never touch it. Hmm. They warned these companies to never touch it, but they didn't listen. And basically, um, our concept is you don't mess with nature. You don't mess with these deities. The nuclear industry decreates. That's how nuclear fission works. It decreates atoms. Hmm. So basically, you're angering that deity by breaking it. And it spends eons, the rest of eternity in our concept, trying to put itself back together. And that's what the decay process is in scientific terms, is these, I, you know, Mm. These isotopes are always trying to pull back together to form its stable self. Um, as far as getting through to the industry, well, you know, they know and there's been an intentional by the government to keep us poor, mm. to keep our communities poor, keep us in crisis. Mm. Uh, we also have suicide you know, high suicide rates as well, you know, like they're experiencing in Aborigine communities in Australia. Mm. It's the same because people have been brought in off the land. They've lost their autonomy. They've become dependent. And so, but one of the things in Canada is with the treaties that we, that were signed with, um, with the government, there's this misconception by government or this deception by government that this meant that we ceded the lands and the resources. Mm. Well, we didn't. 
because there wouldn't have been any concept of such a thing. Not, not in the terms of the time of the signing. Mm. And the uh, resources were transferred from the government of Canada to the provinces um, 25 years after the treaties were signed because they forgot about the resources under the land and they thought they were pushing us onto like, you know, basically useless territory. But then they discovered there was minerals. Mm. So they transferred all the resources to the province and bypassed the original treaty signers. So this uh, whole concept of, of getting through to them that, you know, what they're messing with is, is a powerful deity you know, we've challenged them. We've mm-hmm. challenged uh, the researchers to find out what we already know from our traditional knowledge, what the purpose of uranium is under the ground before it's too late because they're messing with things they shouldn't be messing. And they they look at us like, what are you talking about? It's just a mineral. Well, it's not just a mineral. The whole concept of looking after the lands for future generations is 7,000 generations in the case of uranium. Mm. we got to look that far ahead. The, the elders tell us we have to look after the DNA now. We have to look after the DNA of our people, of all people, mm. because what does the decreation of, of these uh, uranium do? It, it alters... It impacts our DNA and intergenerationally impacts our DNA. And that's proven. Mm. Thanks for sharing um, those cultural wisdom with us. Um, Certainly very powerful. And I did just want to ask about um, obviously the No Dakota Access Pipeline hit the world stage um, late last year and uh, not one yet, um, but it has become a symbol of First Nation resistance and inspiring many solidarity actions and online activism. But has it impacted the struggles in Saskatchewan? And um, do you think it is something of a turning point or that 2017 this year, um, I guess, offers, offers hope for an even stronger resistance? I pray it offers hope for a stronger resistance. Uh, they've been doing a hell of a job down there. And and it's not just about resisting, but it's also about creating and gathering people together in unity mm. to stand up for what's right, for what's important, and, and protecting that for the future generations. In terms of Saskatchewan, um, you know, a lot of people from Saskatchewan did travel down there and have offered support. Some of our members have gone down several times, taken them trappers' tents so they can live there more easily in the winter. Um, it's not an easy thing what they're doing. Hmm. It's it's really harsh down there with the winds and stuff, and it's and 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 what they're facing. Oh my God, like. You know, they've faced chemical warfare, essentially, is what's happened. And they've been targeted with violence and, and maligned. And, you know, it's it's psychological war, too. Mm. And that's going to go on. And 
like companies are watching this and people on the line everywhere are watching this and learning from it and we're seeing what they're facing and we're seeing what's worked and we're seeing how important it is that people stand together in peaceful prayer without resorting to violence because everybody knows we're all outgunned, right? You know, mm. why you can't go up against them that way. Mm. Um, that and, and we don't want to be that way. So, yeah, in terms of Saskatchewan, though, like we are doing everything we can in, in our part of Saskatchewan because, like, Saskatchewan's huge. Mm. Um, to to raise the awareness that our government is is really tied to these resource industries and you know they they take they have no regulations basically people didn't rise up when when the North Saskatchewan River which is a major river had a pipeline spill last July mm. and it, and it cut off the water supply for months to 80,000 people Wow. And there was no huge outcry. There was no huge rise up. So it's really scary because, like, there's three big pipelines scheduled to go through Saskatchewan right now. Mm. And I really hope people start to rise because, you know, this just brings on more uh, expansion of tar sands in Alberta, mm. more fracking in Saskatchewan and pipelines through northern Saskatchewan and we don't want to see that happening because that that's out of sight out of mind over thousands of waterways we seriously have to rein in and take a change in direction for the sake of everything not just people but the relationship we have with everything on this planet mm. that's part of our and that's part of our our mindset, our cultural ways, our values. Candace Paul, member of the English River Nation and spokesperson for the Committee for Future Generations. Thank you, Candice, for navigating the time zones and taking the time for this thought-provoking and inspiring interview. You can follow up on today's topics by going to committeeforfuturegenerations.wordpress.com or finding the group on Facebook. The Committee for Future Generations have also issued a call-out for an International Day of Action Against the Nuclear Industry on July 16, 2017, so keep an eye out for that. This has been Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on the land of the Wurundjeri people in Fitzroy, Melbourne, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Crunch. You can stream or podcast our show on 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters, and that's three the number. Email us at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Sounds on today's show were sourced from the Free Sound Archive. And thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association for their ongoing financial support. Be sure to tune in again for more Earth Matters.
Do you want to dig down into the dirt and find out what's going on in the activist community? Are you concerned about environmental and social justice? Friends of the Earth has a new radio show, Dirt Radio, Mondays 10.30 on 3CR. Join us to dig the dirt. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Global Intifada, bringing you current affairs through revolutionary and protest music from around the world. Every Thursday afternoon from 5 till 6 on 3CR. Because music is our bomb. <laughs> 